That's Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. On the 16th of October, 1555, Hugh Latimer was burned to the stake in Broad Street in Oxford. His crime was that he held to the apostolic gospel against the religious establishment at the time, and he wasn't willing to recant. As he was burned, it was reported that he said to the person who was burnt next to him, Nicholas Ridley, uh, that he said this, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace. In England, as I trust, shall never be put out. The question we're answering this evening is, what does it look like to be a light in a dark world? What does it look like to be a torchbearer for the kingdom of God? What does it look like to try and speak the life-giving gospel to those around us? Sometimes people like me uh, can stand in the front of church buildings, and if we're not careful, I can sound very triumphalistic about speaking for Jesus and what it's like, making it sound like it's easy. But if that mistake is made, 
it does just sound hollow or discouraging, doesn't it? Because it lacks all reality. It doesn't match up with anything of our own experience. But I think we'll find what the Bible actually says about Christian experience very encouraging because it is fully in line with what life is really like for the Christian. Because if we find ourselves feeling nervous when we say in a new environment that we're a Christian for the first time, or we were apprehensive about inviting some of our colleagues to the event tomorrow night, or we just generally find it hard or uncomfortable to speak about Jesus, that doesn't make us defective or failures as Christians. That is what it can feel like to be the light in a dark world. God's strategy for expanding his kingdom is through our weakness. And our passage this evening is absolutely foundational in setting expectations for that. We're going to follow Paul's experience in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. It's an experience that Paul thinks is emblematic. Looking back on his life when he's approaching his death, Paul says to his number two, Timothy, it's at the top of your handout there. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all all the Lord rescued me. He basically tells Timothy that you know you're genuine because um, your life in some sense resembles what happens in Acts, Acts chapters 13 and 14. And this is not just for Christian leaders or some sort of super Christian. Timothy is an ordinary Christian believer like anyone who follows Jesus today. But to be absolutely clear, Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. At one stage or another, um, this is every Christian life. Maybe we can put it like this. Being the light of the world is not so much feeling like a flamethrower, blasting shafts of light um, unopposed. It feels a bit more like being a flickering candle, barely managing to stay aflame in the buffeting wind. But before we turn to see the light, and um, before we turn to see that light involves suffering um, in the way of Jesus' servant, and we need to note again that it stems from speaking the words of his grace. So that's the first thing we're looking at, speaking the words of Jesus' grace. And in some ways, this is a recap of what we've been seeing over the last two weeks, where Paul was speaking in Antioch. But it's important that we see why he continues to do that in Iconium and Lystra, and why it's worth doing that. It's because it's a task that Jesus authenticates and it has the power to liberate. So picking up where we left off last week, after Paul was driven out in Antioch, in 14 verse 1, Paul and Barnabas spoke in a synagogue in Iconium. When they couldn't speak there anymore, in 14 verse 3, they went speaking boldly in the city. And in 14, 6 and 7, when they had to leave Iconium, they continued to preach the gospel in Lystra and the surrounding region. They continued to speak as 14 verse 3 puts it, the word of his grace. And what's new in this section of Acts is that Paul and Barnabas have been sent to speak the word in Gentile territory, or as the geography of Acts puts it, uh, to the ends of the earth. And the Lord Jesus here gives his rubber stamp of approval to that endeavor. Verse 3, the Lord Jesus, it says, bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done through their hands. Now, this matches what um, Jesus did in his own earthly ministry. Back in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter described um, as, as this. He said, Jesus was attested to you by God 
with mighty works and wonders and signs. And now Jesus gives his divine thumbs up to the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. As Paul later says in 2 Corinthians 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. This speaking business that Paul and Barnabas were doing, it's trademarked um, by God himself. But these miracles don't just authenticate what he's doing. Um, The term signs suggests that they communicate something about that salvation that Paul's speaking about as well. We see that in the example recorded for us in Lystra. It starts in verse 8. Luke tells us that now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now this is a doppelganger miracle uh, of one Peter performed in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. The prophet said that when God's great salvation would come about, uh, the lame would walk. This is um, one of the signs that God's salvation is coming about. And it's a great thing to see that. My wife, Abby, listens to a Christian parenting podcast called Risen Motherhood. And one of the hosts on that has a disabled child who's never been able to walk. And she says that she loves these type of miracle accounts because it reminds her of the fullness of salvation to come in the future where her child will be able to walk for the first time. She finds it hard to speak about them without getting emotional. And Paul came speaking the words of the Lord Jesus' grace and the Lord Jesus himself witnessed to that fact. This type of salvation now is not just for people in Jerusalem or even in Israel. Jesus is affirming the final frontier of gospel advance to the ends of the earth. Being the light of the world means speaking the word of his grace anywhere. It's a task Jesus approves of. And on top of that, speaking the word of Jesus' grace also has the power to liberate people. We see the stakes of that um, in how people respond to Paul's miracle in verse 11. Luke says, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconium, So obviously Paul and Barnabas couldn't understand what's happening to start with. And they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now this shows another aspect of how the gospel word interacts with the darkness of the world. It calls out idolatry. The Bible is clear that when people suppress the truth about God, they worship something else. They attribute what God provides to something or someone else. In the case of those at Lystra, and they look to Zeus and Hermes to provide for their prosperity. They sacrifice to them so they have rain and plentiful harvests and everything they need to fulfill their lives. Now people laugh at us, or at least they pity us for worshipping what they think is a fake God. When the truth is all around us, even in London today, people do worship fake gods. From Allah to Vishnu to disembodied spirits of ancestors. And the Bible also makes clear that idols go beyond just physical representations of gods. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, Paul tells people to put to death greed, which is idolatry. Or the prophets of the Old Testament accuse Israel of idolatry for trusting in superpowers for protection 
rather than God. In the last few months, uh, we might say that the Conservative Party performed sacrifices to satisfy the gods of the bond markets. But in more serious uh, things, um, if someone is looking for fulfilment from a romantic relationship or a lucrative career, or maybe they've sapped those idols completely and they're looking for sort of some self-actualization, having what my friend called his quarter-life crisis and traveling the world looking to find themselves. The Bible says there's as much use in those things as prostrating yourself before an intricately carved block of wood. And the main point Paul is making here is that the gospel liberates us from that vanity. You don't have to play pretend God anymore when God himself is knocking at the door, if only you would listen. Yet in almost a comical sense here, they say the gods have come down in the likeness of man. And that's surely what Paul has just been preaching about to them. We've already seen in verses 6 and 7 that he continued to preach the gospel in Lystra and the surrounding region. That is the gospel he was preaching in Antioch in Acts 13. That gospel is centered on the salvation Jesus achieves and the God who came as a man. That is the context that Paul performs this healing. But as so often when the gospel is preached, it's misunderstood by people or others sort of hear what they've said but co-opt it into their own system of belief. So Paul does an impromptu follow-up sermon and applies the gospel to his audience here. And when he picks up what's going on, he tears his clothes, he jumps in to the crowd, and he says this in verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What he's saying is that in the past, before the Lord Jesus came, even though the world was rejecting God, and God did not destroy it. In fact, in his kindness, he continued to bless it. He gave generations of people what they needed, and prosperity, uh, chocolate, uh, things to celebrate. It was a witness to himself. But people instead attributed the goodness of God to man-made gods and ideas. They did not know God, and they ultimately had no hope in the face of death. They were in the dark. But now the gospel can be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, through the Lord Jesus, and anyone can turn from the vanity the emptiness of made-up idols. You don't need to chase the wind anymore or try and define your own meaning. You can know the living God, who, by the way, is the one who provided all the stuff in the first place. The gospel word is good news. It is light in a dark world. So what does it look like to be a light in a dark world? It looks like speaking that word of grace, which is authenticated by Jesus and has the power to liberate all of those around us here. But as we acknowledge to start with, it's not often an easy thing to do. And that's because being a light of the world, speaking the words of Jesus, does lead to suffering like Jesus. And that's the second thing we see through this narrative, suffering the way of Jesus' servant. Now you may know that Paul calls himself elsewhere um, the chief of sinners, as an example of those Uh, to all of us, actually, about how far the grace of God extends. 
But I wonder if as well, uh, we could call him the chief of sufferers among Jesus' disciples as an example of what genuine Christian life looks like. Not that every Christian will suffer as severely as him, but it will be true to some extent for all believers. As Paul speaks in each of these towns, opposition is stirred up against him. On each occasion, it's stirred up by the religious, and it's then joined by the power brokers in that place. So in verse 50, we see the Jews incite the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the city. In 14 verse 2, it's the unbelieving Jews who stirred up Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And then they plotted to mistreat and stone them in verse 7. Before remarkably, in verse 19, doing a 100-mile round trip to Lystra to persuade the crowds to stone Paul. Which is even more remarkable given what Paul was achieving through the gospel and was what the Jews never achieved through the law. He was turning idolaters into worshippers of the one true God. They should have been celebrating this. Instead, they were so invested in their own standing and the status quo um, that they seek to destroy him. It wasn't enough just to drive him out of their city. Um, They wanted to, in a literal sense, to cancel Paul. Now, the charity we were praying for earlier, Open Doors, it seeks to support persecuted Christians around the world. On their website every year, they publish a world watch list of countries in which Christians are most persecuted. And if you take a look at it, um, you'll see that some persecution around the world today can be severe, uh, can be as severe as this at times. In Afghanistan in the past year, people who have become known as Christians in some cases have to flee or face um, the prospect of a so-called honour killing. Or there are cases where turning to follow Jesus is treated as a form of insanity, and people have been forcibly sectioned in a psychiatric hospital. But even when opposition is much less severe, whenever the gospel is held out, there is opposition. I was at the church family uh, prayer supper on Monday, and it was very encouraging to hear how the youth Uh, in this church are seeking to speak the gospel in their schools. But it isn't easy for them. Um, With almost all of them, and when they try to set up a Christian meeting, they face some sort of difficulty. In one school, uh, they banned the same outside speaker coming into meetings um, multiple times for religious organizations only. Um, And that happened to be only the Christian union. In another school where Christians are a religious minority, The Christian teenagers are only allowed a seven to ten minute window to host a Bible study, while other students get at least half an hour for Friday prayers. One student this year was brought before their head of year and told they couldn't speak about God's judgment with friends because they might find it offensive. That student went on a school report because of it. And all those are just from the school authorities. Before you get to the general pressures of saying you follow Jesus amidst your peers at school, It's not easy uh, for them. And I'm sure it must be tempting for them to think that they're doing something wrong when it's hard, or following Jesus shouldn't be like this. But Acts encourages those teenagers, and us, I think, that theirs is a genuine Christian experience. And more than that, this is actually the pattern by which Jesus builds his kingdom. The author Luke has shown us that this path has already been walked before Paul. First by the Lord Jesus himself, then by Peter only a few chapters earlier. 
Paul is not an aberration, but a continued example about how one holds out the gospel word and what that looks like. It's the pattern of the servant in the Old Testament we thought about last week, which is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus as he died on the cross for the salvation of the world. But it's continued through his apostles as they take that message of salvation to a world that needs to hear it and through every believer as they fill out the work they started. The kingdom of God does not conquer through force or by impressiveness, but through suffering and weakness. Suffering for the salvation of others is authentic Christian experience. And if you find it hard to stand as a Christian at work or to speak about the Lord Jesus, and that is normal because there's always a cost for doing that sooner or later. Sometimes in our context, relatively small, but not always. And it's interesting, I think, in this passage that there are three or four responses to opposition. So in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are driven out. It's sort of out of their hands what they can do. In verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. They signal they've done all they can do and move on to speak the gospel somewhere else. But then in Iconium, even when they face opposition uh, in verse 2, which is quite severe, and people are trying to poison the minds of others against them, it says in verse 3, so they remained for a long time. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not quite sure how that connective so works there. Is it because they were being misinformed, or the people in Iconium were being misinformed about what the gospel is, so they stayed to give as many as possible the chance to hear it properly? Or maybe they just stayed because they had the opportunity to do so. I'm not sure. Um, you have to let me know what you think afterwards. But then also, uh, we see here that the opposition isn't always uniform. So in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. And I think this is often the case, isn't it? Last month, the student union in Cambridge declared that two gospel-believing churches were unsafe for LGBTQ people. The reason they gave was the letters of uh, the leaders of those churches signed a letter uh, questioning some of the unforeseen consequences of the conversion therapy bill that's trying to be passed at the moment. But the students of the university as a whole were divided. If you read the report in the student newspaper, you find that some students agree with that move, while others, including some said to be speaking for LGBTQ individuals, think the student union is massively overreaching. Uh, they're divided. So even in a hostile, mixed environment, um, here, uh, the right thing to do can be to keep speaking, um, like it was for Paul. But at the same time, Paul and Barnabas, they weren't uh, sort of rashly suicidal. In verses 5 and 6, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learnt of it and fled to Lystra. They weren't masochistic, um, looking for and reviling, reviling and reveling in sorry, opposition. Paul's attitude is never spoiling for a fight. But then again, he knew standing with the Lord Jesus could be very costly, as in Lystra in verse 19, where he was stoned and dragged out of the city. But I think the variation in these accounts um, give us caution before we declare that there's one correct way to respond to opposition, or maybe even more so, um, give us caution not to make quick judgments about how we think other Christians should respond when they're finding things difficult. But whatever situation we do find ourselves in, being the light of the world, it looks like suffering in the way of Jesus and his servants 
for the salvation of others. But a source of great comfort in that, as we see at the end here, is that we're never outside the Lord's sovereign control. Look at Paul's reflection again at the top of your handout. And notice what he adds at the end. He says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium Ministra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. At every stage on this journey, Paul was in significant danger, and at least in the last two places, his opponents were openly trying to stone him. He was in mortal danger. And until Paul got to Lystra, um, the Lord rescued him by pretty normal means. He had a safe passage, and when he was in trouble, he heard about it in advance. But there's a particularly remarkable rescue in Lystra, and it's quite a U-turn in events, if you notice that when we read it. In verse 18, Paul can barely stop the crowd from sacrificing to him, but in verse 19, he finds himself being stoned. And it goes without saying that must have been a horrendous experience in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Only a few years ago, um, outside a city in Jerusalem, Paul was holding people's coats as they stoned Stephen to death for speaking the gospel. Now he was outside a city being stoned himself. But as we saw back in chapter 12 with Peter, if you were here for that, and summed up in the missionary Henry Martin's quote, and the one who serves the Lord Jesus can say, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. I'm immortal until God's work for me to do is done. Now, I don't think Paul is resurrected or resuscitated from death here, because I think Luke would have told us that. Um, Rather, he was in such a bad state that those stoning him thought he was dead. But like the healing of the lame man uh, just earlier, this surely is a resurrection miracle. I mean, do you think you could do what Paul did in verse 20? When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Now, a few weeks ago, I was staying with my parents, and they're quite stuck in the dark ages, occasionally um, rather watching, uh, only watching TV on demand. They sometimes flick through actual television channels. It was like being part of a historical reenactment. <laughs> and one evening, we caught a few minutes of a James Bond film. 007 was uh, on a train, but he was taking the beating of his life from a very large man. He was being thrown through trains' internal infrastructure, taking blow after blow after blow. Yet amazingly, after some unfortunate event, uh, it meant the big man fell off the train and Bond survived. But more amazingly than that, uh, when he walked out of the carriage, rather than heading straight to A&E and taking about six months to recover from all the broken bones and ruptured spleen and whatever else there would have been, um, he went on doing James Bond-type things, just with a sort of slight scratch below his eye. Now, that obviously, in the real world, can't happen without some sort of miraculous intervention. And that must have been what happened here with Paul. He was left for dead, but was risen up to do Paul-type things. The next day, he went to preach the gospel in Derby. Yet from all the Lord rescued me, I am immortal and called God's work for me to do is done. This is not a promise that every Christian is going to be rescued miraculously from every very difficult situation. Paul knew that more than anyone, having witnessed Stephen's death. But the Lord will keep the Christian going in one way or another until his or her work is done. 
being the light of the world, bringing God's salvation to people in the dark, looks like speaking the words of Jesus' grace and suffering in the way of Jesus' servants. In every place Paul went here, even through the opposition he faced, as some people, at least, believed the gospel. Even in Lystra, there were some believers to gather around Paul outside the city when he was dragged out there. And that is the case all over the world as the gospel has gone out in the past 2,000 years. That is the pattern of kingdom growth in a dark world. Even in deepest, darkest England, that candle burnt by Latimer and Ridley is still burning. It's been taken on by teenagers in London today. And even when we feel very weak and our torch is just about flickering, we can be part of it too. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, thank you so much for the salvation we have in the Lord Jesus, that through him we no longer have to serve vain idols, but can know you, the living God. Please help us to have the right expectations for what it's like to live for you. And please help us to persevere until the work you've given us to do is done. Amen.